Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. A major effect, President Trump citing the trade war as China's growth slows. Feeling the city beat, Citigroup kicking off earnings season with some solid numbers and primed for protest. Amazon Prime Day set to mean billions of dollars of spending, but also draw one or two complaints. It's Monday. Let's make a move. once again to First Move. I hope you all had a lovely weekend. I personally am exhausted from all the sporting drama. Yay for the English cricket team, of course. But also, what about that epic Wimbledon final? Records being set and broken left, right and centre. And Wall Street can also be included, of course. Take a look at what we're seeing for US futures right now. Of course, we saw the week ending last week at record highs. We could see fresh highs at the open today too. The S&P 500 posting its first ever close above that 3,000 figure. The Dow, the Nasdaq also sitting at all-time records as well. Also, what a way to enter earnings season this week, especially given the fact that growth expectations for earnings here are incredibly muted. Important, of course, because it means beating those forecasts should be easier. And that's going to help determine whether or not the rally that we're seeing in U.S. stocks can continue. We'll also be keeping a firm eye, and this is crucial, on guidance. What are the banks, for example, saying about rate cut hopes? What are firms saying about their hopes for a trade deal with China? 10% of the S&P 500 reporting this week, including, as I mentioned, all the major U.S. banks, Netflix, Microsoft, too. Citigroup kick things off before the bell with a beat. Details on all that in just a moment. For now, though, take a look at what's going on in the Asia session today. Stocks closing Monday's session higher, despite China reporting the weakest economic growth in almost three decades. That's a ridiculous headline, guys, because remember, the economy is so much bigger over that period that number, magnitude comparisons of growth become completely meaningless, at least in my view. More importantly, I think, for investors overnight, China's industrial production, retail sales numbers also coming in above expectations. These were fresh reads from just the last month, perhaps suggesting that recent stimulus efforts from the Chinese government are bearing fruit, perhaps. But hey, let's get to the details because that's where we're going to kick off the drivers. One man who certainly noticed those numbers was U.S. President Donald Trump. He tweeted this morning that his tariffs are having a, quote, major effect and that China wants a deal. Stephen Zhang joins us now from Beijing. What do we make of that, Stephen? These growth numbers clearly weaker than we've seen in the past, of course. But I make the point that on a magnitude basis, the economy is that much bigger than it was three decades ago that, hey, we have to take that that line with a pinch of salt here. Talk us through the numbers. 
Well, Judy, that's right. You know, that was not Mr. Trump's first time assessing and, and analyzing the state of the Chinese economy. But I think the officials here would uh, like to uh, probably back to defer when they announced these uh, figures this morning, Monday morning. They acknowledge this economy, the world's second largest, is facing a grave and complex situation, uh, you know, blaming a global slowdown, but also, uh, uh, you know, citing uh, rising uh, external uncertainties. That would certainly include this ongoing year-long trade war between the U.S. and China. But in a way, the officials here are trying to downplay the impact of the trade war on these uh, uh, slowdown and uh, almost trying to separate these issues. They, of course, uh, you know, say the uh, trade war has affected the imports and exports to and from the U.S. And actually, uh, the uh, trade data doesn't look that rosy uh, for the broader picture as well, because uh, some of the other major part trading partners of China, such as European Union and Asian countries, you see these uh, numbers decline as well. But the government officials trying to say, uh, look, this economy is not only about trade anymore, increasingly reliant on consumption. But here lies the problem. Some of, uh, some of the economists saying uh, this trade war is, is becoming a major factor because it's affecting uh, business investment decisions as well as consumer confidence. And we are seeing, for example, consumers are becoming more reluctant to buy big ticket items. We're talking about cars, of course. China is uh, the world's biggest car market already, and the sales continue to slow down in the first half of this year. Now, that's affecting, of course, a lot of global brands. But other sectors are affected as well, Julia, such as Apple. Uh, Apple's product sales uh, uh, in the greater China region dropped more than 20% in the, in, in the second quarter. So these are the kind of factors that make some analysts say the impact of this trade war will persist, uh, despite the uh, temporary truce reached by the two leaders last month, because uh, um, uh, very few people see how the two sides can bridge their wide gap uh, to reach a compre comprehensive trade deal anytime soon. Julia? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's going to be important to hear what we hear from companies stateside as well about the prospects of this too. Stephen Jang over in Beijing for us there. Thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to our second driver. City shares higher by some 1% pre-market after reporting profits and revenues that beat expectations. They are, of course, the first big U.S. bank to report this earnings season. Matt Egan has been pouring over the numbers for us. Capital markets, the trading business was always expected to be weak. So what's driving the outperformance here? Is it cost cutting, I hear here, or the U.S. Consumer Bank or both? Julie, I'd say it's both. You know, what's interesting is that much like the U.S. economy overall, Citi is benefiting from strength in the consumer business, which is actually offsetting some of the weakness elsewhere. So this morning, Citi is kicking off bank earnings season on a positive note. Now, if you look at overall EPS, it was up about 20%, which looks very strong, um, but that overstates the case a little bit. That's because Citi benefited from a $350 million pre-tax gain from its investment in TradeWeb, which is an electronics trading platform that went public in April. Now, if you exclude that, EPS was up by a, a more modest 12%. Now, that really does reflect two big factors there. One is the cost cutting that you mentioned, expenses down about 2%. But the other factor is that Citi has been very aggressive with share buybacks. Their overall share count actually was down by 10% during the quarter. That's because 
the bank went out and repurchased 54 million shares during the quarter. So that is a big driver here. Now, if you dig into uh, sort of the overall results of the divisions here, uh, the consumer division had revenue that was up about 3%. All three geographical regions uh, grew revenue. So that was a bright spot. But the institutional clients group, revenue was flat, and that's despite the trade web gain. Um, we saw declines in fixed income revenue, which fell modestly. And the, the bank said that there was challenging market uh, characteristics there. And then we had equity revenue, which was down as well. So I think overall, when you take a step back, these results from City are pretty solid. Uh, they're not spectacular, but given all of the challenges here, they're, they're solid. Yeah, fascinating as well, your point about the buybacks in light of the, what, 37% rally that we've seen in stocks year to date. I guess we have to make the point that it's only 3% over the last year, but great point to make there. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that update there. All right. Next driver, protests and star strikes planned worldwide against Amazon as its 48-hour Prime Day sale starts campaigning over pay and working conditions. This is the protest, of course, and the firm's involvement with the United States deportation efforts. Claire Sebastian joins us now on this story. Let's talk about the numbers first. Prime Day, actually two days this time around. Multi-billion dollars last year, over $5 billion spending expected this year. Talk us through the details. Yeah, Julia, they, uh, Amazon themselves, they don't break out the numbers for Prime Day. They keep everyone guessing. Uh, but there are a bunch of research companies who come out, and one of them, CoreSight Research, says they expect $5.8 billion in sales this year, which would be uh, a new record. But, uh, you know, obviously this is working for Amazon because they keep growing it. First it was 24 hours, then 30 hours, then 36. Now we have 48 hours. So the, the phrase Amazon Prime Day doesn't even begin to cover it anymore. But but this year isn't going to be smooth sailing, as you alluded to uh, in your introduction there. They are facing protests. We've got 2,000 workers walking off the job in Germany and fulfillment centers. More are expected to join. Protests are planned in the UK. And here in the US, for the first time on Prime Day, we're, we're going to see a walkout uh, by fulfillment center workers in Minnesota. So I spoke to the, the VP of Prime, Jem Shabai, uh, from Amazon, and I asked him for his reaction to, to the fact that this is the first Prime Day walkout in the US. We have a lot of redundancy in place for it. We have over 175 fulfillment centers uh, globally to make sure that uh, Prime member experiences are not disrupted uh, during this event as well. But we take you know, concerns of our employees uh, obviously uh, very, very uh, seriously as well. But I'm really actually proud uh, of the working conditions in our fulfillment centers. So he said the same thing to me last year, Julia, when, when we saw workers protesting in Europe and walking off the job. This is the party line from uh, Amazon. But I asked him why this keeps happening, why these concerns keep coming up. And he said, look, this is a very hot political issue. Obviously, we see these, these uh, complaints and these, uh, this, this line coming out from 2020 candidates. So clearly Amazon uh, partly blaming the politics here. Absolutely, but it doesn't deter consumers from spending billions of dollars. And that's the punchline. And it's got others looking at what Amazon are doing here and perhaps trying to take a piece of the action here. Look at eBay. Claire, you pointed this out and I love this advert. Guys, just watch this. Alexa, what is Prime Day? Alexa? Alexa? Yes? What is Prime Day? Prime Day is a holiday Amazon totally made up to get people excited about their parade of deals. At least real parades don't charge a membership fee. Alexa, how do you know all this? I'm always listening. <laughs> this is great. Alexa, where do I go to shop? Why don't you try eBay? Nice. But it's a smart way of doing it, Claire, and promoting that there are other options out there. 
Absolutely. You know, we, we talk about Amazon reshaping the retail landscape. They've reshaped the retail calendar, Julia. Consumers are now expecting sales in July, not just from Amazon, but from everyone. But I thought it was interesting that, that eBay are doing this. They're not the only one uh, doing a bit of negative marketing here. We have Target doing their deal days, emphasizing that no membership is required because, of course, Amazon Prime Day is just for Prime members. But I asked uh, the VP of buyer engagement at eBay, I said, are you trying to ride the kind of the societal backlash that we're seeing against Amazon at the moment, the, the zeitgeist of, uh, of protests and, and, and all sorts of, of criticism of Amazon? He said, no, we're just having a little fun. But I guess you can interpret that advert the way you want, Julia. We're always watching. Yes. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. I'm not watching, listening. Should be clear about that. All right. Let me bring you up to speed with some of the other headlines that we are watching around the world. Democrats have widely condemned comments made by U.S. President over the weekend. President Trump suggested in a series of tweets that a group of non-white U.S. Congresswomen should, quote, go back to the, quote, crime-infested countries that they came from. Joe Johnson, Washington, for us. Joe, great to have you with us. I mean, to be specific, three of these women were actually born in the United States. One came as a, a very small child. A deafening silence here from the Republicans, too. Talk us through the details. What do we make of this? Well, you're right. There's one of those members of Congress who was actually born in Somalia, Elan Omar, and came to the United States something like 19 years ago. The other three have been born in the United States. But this expression, go back to your own country, is a very common a racist trope used in the United States for generations, quite frankly. But what is a bit shocking about it is that it's the president of the United States who's the messenger, and it's being directed at duly elected members of Congress. So uh, the question, of course, is what are the president's allies in Congress going to say about this? And so far, we pretty much had across the board silence. And uh, that uh, certainly speaks volumes. And we've also had a bit of awkwardness here at the White House as well, as the president has tweeted again, uh, going after the four members of Congress. Meanwhile, the vice president's chief of staff out here just a little while ago, suggesting that the president's tweets were really simply uh, directed at that one member of Congress, Ilan Omar, who is a huge critic of the president, by the way. She, as a matter of fact, said over the weekend, that the president was playing into uh, white nationalist sentiments. So uh, we expect this to go on and hope to find out what some of the president's allies are saying about this uh, sometime today. Back to yeah, it's also drawn attention away from infighting within the Democratic Party between these congresswomen and uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi as well, which is interesting. But I, I do want to talk to you about all the headlines that were taken up over the weekend here in the United States with um, migrant raids authorities looking for, for illegal immigrants in the United States or those that have um, been posted or have been signposted as having to leave the United States. It seemed to have more headline than, than actual action here. What happened over the weekend? You're, you're certainly right about that. We know that the president on Friday, uh, as he was departing to go out to Wisconsin for an event, said that all of this was going to begin this weekend and we had every indication that it would. However, we haven't gotten a lot of information about what types of arrests and so forth uh, these raids have netted. It's not clear at all that the United States government has fully embarked on this plan to try to get 
what has alternatively been described as a million undocumented immigrants who are in the country with no leave to 2,000 immigrants that they're trying to go after. So a lot of questions surrounding that, a lot more bark, if you will, than bite, at least so far, as far as we know, and when it comes to rounding up uh, these people who are in the country illegally. Yeah, and of course, the government argue they are documented. They've been cited for removal. Joe Johns, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on now to Iran. Iran is still a good year away from developing a nuclear weapon. That's according to Jeremy Hunt, the British Foreign Secretary and contender for Prime Minister. He's meeting with European counterparts to discuss the Iran nuclear accord. He said there's still a small window to keep the deal alive, but made clear there could be no partial compliance of it. The World War II codebreaker and visionary mathematician Alan Turing will be the face of the new £50 bill in the UK. When announcing the pick, Bank of England Governor Mark Carney hailed Turing as the father of computer science and artificial intelligence. The note is set to go into circulation by 2022. Jubilation in the home of cricket. England sweeping to a dramatic victory over New Zealand to win their first ever Cricket World Cup at Lord's Cricket Ground on Sunday. Fans piled into the Oval Cricket Ground in London to celebrate with their heroes this morning. They met with players who were more than happy to sign memorabilia and pose for selfies. British Prime Minister Theresa May, who is a big cricket fan, tweeted her best wishes too to the victorious team. All right, coming up here on First Move, the biggest IPO of the year gets shelved. But is it more about the company or the market? And from a power cut that took Broadway from the stage out onto the streets of Manhattan to a streaming service that's giving the best seat in the house in your home. That's all up next on First Move. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stocks look set to move further into record territory when we open up in around 10 minutes' time. As you can see, earnings season, of course, kicking off 10% of the S&P 500 companies reporting this week. Joining us now, Krishna Mamani, the Vice Chairman of Investments at Invesco. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Let's talk China first. China's second quarter numbers, growth numbers coming through. A lot's being made of the fact that they're the weakest in 27 years. Don't care about that. The economy is much bigger. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I think the Chinese economy was slowing down for and has been slowing down for quite some time. And the fact that it grew at 10, 12 percent in the uh, early 2000s is kind of irrelevant today. Yeah. The growth trend is slowing. But the question is how fast and what are they going to do about it? And I think they have already uh, started pump priming. And that is having some effect. If you look at some underlying data, there, is, there are signs of stabilization. So the likelihood that we have significant uh, drawdown on uh, Chinese growth, I think, is very modest at this point. The president tweeted this morning that China wants a trade deal. He specifically cited the growth numbers. Do you think or are you seeing anything in the, the Chinese data, as much as we believe the, the headline numbers that we're seeing here, that would argue to that point? Well, I, I think that China does want a trade deal. I think if they don't get a trade deal, the risk to the economy increases meaningfully. And especially they will have to stimulate their domestic economy significantly more, which they don't want to do. So I think uh, Mr. Trump does have a valid point, but so does he. Uh, for him to get reelected in 20 
2020, he needs a trade deal so that U.S. economy doesn't slow down precipitously as well. Because this is something we're also going to be looking at in earnings season and the forecasts that we get from sure. companies. What are they saying now about their expectations for a trade deal? And perhaps do they have to recalibrate their expectations, their investment decisions, if we don't get a deal by the end of this well, year? So I, I think right now, the, in the current for, uh, framework, it's really not as much about getting a trade deal as much as it is about not making it far worse by imposing further tariffs. Okay. So I think the U.S. economy will probably grow at uh, somewhere close to 2% irrespective of a trade deal. And we probably don't get an all-encompassing trade deal anytime, uh, anytime soon. But if we don't get tariffs, we are okay. And, but the problem with that, though, is capital expenditures plans uh, on the back of no trade deal remain very, very subdued. And that has been a challenge for this economy for quite some time. That's the key, business investment. Fine, we can stabilize and we can continue to sustain the growth levels that we're seeing, but we're not gonna invest to continue to support the economy or see stronger growth. No, absolutely. I think the problem is, uh, you know, we, we expected business investments to pick up uh, uh, after the tax deal. I personally didn't, but the, that's what our, the economic expectation didn't pan out. In a growth short world, expecting significant amount of kicker to the economy from business, I think that's just not going to not going to happen. This is an economy driven by consumption. Unemployment is low, incomes are growing, so we will get enough consumption for us to grow at 2%. Well, there is a kicker, and it comes from Jay Powell, of course, at the Federal Reserve. Everyone now, I think, expecting, firmly expecting him to cut rates in July, you too. Yes, indeed. I, I think earlier our expectation was probably later in the year, but now it is. he had an opportunity to walk back the market uh, in his testimony and, and he didn't. did not. <laughs> so therefore, we are definitely going to get a 25 basis points. The likelihood of a 50 basis points in our view is pretty modest. Uh, but down the road, probably in September or by the end of the year, we probably get another one. Uh, having said that, I think the, the, all of these rate cuts are insurance rate cuts. Overall, economy will probably get back to its 2% trend growth rate by the middle of the second half, and I think everything would be okay. Is it the right decision, ultimately? Because, you know, if you listen to certain people talking about the economy, they say, look, a, a slowdown recession can be cathartic. I, I've seen that word used. Is that utter nonsense? It is absolute nonsense. Yeah. You know, expecting a recession to solve your problem. It's not healthy. One, it's not healthy. And at what cost? I mean, in an, in an economy where people have trouble coming up with $500, half of an the population, emergency, emergency, you know, getting them through a recession, and that is how we are going to solve our problems, that's uh, nonsense and inhumane. But when we're talking about U.S. stocks at record highs, you can understand some of the confusion over the idea that the Federal Reserve would be stimulating the economy here. Um, inflating asset price bubbles or am I just Talking well, so I, I think asset prices are important, but and, and uh, you know clearly uh, asset prices are high, but they are relatively not that high if you if, if you kind of figure in low interest rates. That's point one. Point two, 
an asset bubble in and of itself really does not matter. What matters is credit growth on the back of that asset bubble. And that really hasn't happened. Credit growth is really very modest on the consumer sector. It's barely there, barely positive. It turned positive in 2015. Uh, and, and there are really no pressures on the, on the consumer side. Business, uh, the business leverage has gone up a bit, but not a whole lot. So I, if I were the Fed, I wouldn't worry about asset prices as much as I would worry about making sure we don't kill the economy. Yeah, important. Also, they're kind of singing for all from the same hymn same sheet here. European Central Bank. But even if you look at emerging market central banks here too, everyone's recognizing that while the Federal Reserve is easing, they have room to move too. And oh, absolutely. Too. Absolutely. Especially for emerging markets. So U.S. real rates are really not that high. If you say one, let's say one, one and a half percent and two-year treasury rates close to uh, two and change, we are talking about, you know, sub one percent real rates. But if you talk in Brazil or if you talk in India where inflation rates have come down meaningfully, uh, there's a lot of room to cut uh, cut rates, nominal rates, and real rates would come down. Uh, at the at the end of the day, my expectation has been beginning middle of next year, oh, middle of last year, is that economies globally is going to slow down and policy is going to be supportive. Positive message to end on, Krishna Mamani. Thank you so much for that. Thank the you. The market open is next. see happy smiling faces on a Monday morning. Welcome back to First Move live from the New York Stock Exchange. That was the opening bell here this morning and stocks are in fresh record territory again. We hit all-time highs of course at the close on Friday. Helped along by Citigroup beating earnings expectations today. It's going to be a huge week for US banks this week so that's setting a strong tone. Also some data before the open this morning as well. A strong rebound in the New York Fed's main factory index. That was a fresh July reading though it's not all good news. Take a look at this despite Despite July's record run for the larger cap stocks, economically sensitive smaller caps and the Dow Transport Index far from record highs. Both have lost ground over the past three months despite the prospect of Fed cuts from Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve. Of course, speaking of lower rates, plenty of Fed speak this week as well before their quiet period begins on Saturday. All right, let's take a look at AB InBev because those shares are falling over in Brussels. This after the firm pulled its plan IPO of its Asia business. If you remember, we were talking about this on Friday. It would have been the biggest IPO or the biggest public offering of the year. Anna Stewart has picked up this story for us. Anna, we were talking about AB InBev and, and the planned IPO on Friday, and I was pointing out a lot of anomalies here. Too high a price, perhaps. They didn't have anchor investors, and now formally saying that they're pulling the deal. What are they saying? Very little, Julia. So no deal, at least not yet. And all they really said was that there were several factors involved, including the prevailing market conditions. Essentially, as you said, it just didn't, didn't think it could reach the valuation it wanted. And given a lot of the rationale behind this IPO of the Asian business was to pay down its massive debt load since it bought SAB Miller, if it couldn't reach the right valuation, then it could just hold off. It wasn't worth doing it if at a much lower valuation. Now, analysts have had much, much more to say today. Macquarie has called it a meaningful negative development. So despite it not really reflecting necessarily uh, the underlying business and the health of the business itself, it does see this as essentially a way that it's going to take way longer to pay down that debt. 
It's got to meet its targets by 2020. Uh, it says we could see another dividend cut. It did have a cut last October that actually resulted in the share price falling some 11%. This is considered to be one of the more shareholder-friendly sort of businesses. So they see that as negative. Liberum, on the other hand, they say it'll still meet its debt target reduction plan by 2022 or 2020. Uh, but it says it will prevent the company uh, growing in some key Asian markets like the Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam, another rationale behind this deal initially. Yeah, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? Because this is a huge growth sector of the business. I just wonder whether it comes down to the economics here, as I was always pointing out, that they simply priced this wrong and they, they didn't judge market conditions well, or whether it says something else about where we are right now in the cycle, reducing equity allocations. Perhaps you don't buy into a, a big IPO at this point in time. It's an interesting one. I think it's a little bit of both. We're, yeah, looking yeah. at where money's going and which assets and putting it into context of central bank action, etc. But also just looking at the IPO market, EY's most recent report looking at the first half of this year points that Asia-Pacific IPOs were down 12% so far compared to the year before. Europe down over 50% in the first half compared to the year before. Now, we are seeing unicorns finding little windows of opportunity, particularly stateside, but the global outlet for IPOs isn't great. There may be a rebound in Q2, or sorry, second half, but EY puts this down very much to what happens on geopolitical stories, US and China trade tensions and Brexit. Yeah, we keep coming back to that. <laughs> Stuart, thank you so much for that update there. All right, to Indonesia now, where the president of Indonesia, Joko Widodo, is speaking out to CNN for the first time since his re-election for a second term. Sitting down with our Anna Corrin, the leader outlined his plans to drive growth in Southeast Asia's biggest economy. Listen in. The Indonesian president, officially known as Jokowi, has announced the need for major economic reform after winning his second and final term in office. In his first international TV interview with CNN since his re-election, he discussed the need to ease restrictions on foreign investment, lower the corporate tax rate and overhaul labour laws that are holding back the world's seventh largest economy. And while commentators question his political will, Jokowi says he has the mandate to do what is necessary. We must conduct reform on a massive scale, a reform of mindset, so that these changes are real and will deliver a giant leap for this country, so that we're not stuck in the middle income trap that's experienced by many countries. We don't want that, but this is a huge challenge for us, and it's fairly difficult. But we will continue to work hard to achieve that goal. Corruption is also a major problem here in Indonesia and a deterrent for foreign investors. The president says they are trying hard to combat this. But in a country of 260 million people, it is going to take time. Julia. Corin there. All right, let me bring you up to speed with our global movers today. Symantec under pressure in the session. There are reports swirling that the security software company has ended takeover negotiations with Broadcom. Sources are apparently saying that Symantec would not accept less than $28 a share. Earlier this month, there were reports that the companies were close to a deal. We'll continue to track that progress. All right, Citigroup. Also in focus, Q2 profits and revenues beating expectations. It was boosted by a jump in fixed income trading and cost cutting. It also received a $350 million pre-tax gain from the IPO of the electronic bond trading platform 
trade web. Remember, we were pointing out earlier, up some 37% year-to-date already. Boeing, also uh, the one to watch today. Wall Street uh, journalists reporting that the embattled 737 MAX jets may stay grounded until early 2020. That's months later than when the company is, uh, has been privately telling customers. And it comes after American Airlines extended its flight cancellations for the plane for the fifth time on Sunday to November 2nd. All right, so we're going to take a quick break. But coming up, geopolitics, supply, and even the weather having an impact on the energy markets. We're getting energetic and discussing all things crude and gas after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. All prices moving higher, as you can see in the session, on the back of a positive data on Chinese industrial output and retail sales. Let's let's blame or thank that. Brent crude trading at over $67 a barrel, as you can see. West Texas Intermediate selling at around 61, just shy of that. There are several other factors at play, of course, and we've been talking about them endlessly, including tensions in the Strait of Hormuz, a tropical storm slashing U.S. production, and a warning from the IEA last week of oversupply. Applies, we head into 2020. So let's talk it through. Rob Thummel is uh, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager at Tortoise Capital Advisors. And it's your birthday today. <laughs> Happy you. birthday. Thank I'm you, not going to sing. <laughs> okay, Rob, let's talk it through. I have to say, it does feel like a trade deal, the prospects of a trade deal, and what that means for demand going forward and the demand outlook is, is front and center for, for all investors right now. Yeah, you're right, Julie. Uh, a trade deal is really important. Um, it's, it really will solidify what demand's going to be. You've seen a lot of agencies actually reduce demand yeah. for 2019 because of concerns about a trade deal not happening. But then they've boosted 2020 uh, really demand. And so uh, we, we see that really important. We see that inevitable. But, but ultimately, uh, once we get to that point, that will be good for the broader oil markets, we think. Talk to me about OPEC here, too, because I think what supported oil prices in light of some of the disappointment around a trade deal was OPEC formalizing their agreement with, with Russia and OPEC plus nations to say, look, we're going to continue with the cuts that we've got in action. What do they call it? A Catholic marriage. <laughs> yeah. In a well, good way. <laughs> yeah. You know, the most important thing that came out of OPEC was the fact that they wanted to decrease, actually, global oil inventories yes. and get them below the five-year average, actually get them to a five-year average that was from 2010 to 2014. Why that's important is because... Oil inventories are really what are important to keep oil prices kind of stable. And we think for energy investors to come back to the sector, you need stable oil prices. And the OPEC meeting uh, will result in that, in our opinion. And so to your point, though, about what the forecasts look like for demand in 2020, we had the IEA last week, and we talked about this on the show, saying unless there's material further cuts from OPEC and OPEC Plus, we're going to have a supply cut glut in, yeah. in, in 2020. And at the heart of that is the U.S. production and that that it's going gangbusters and they're producing more and more. But no, that's a very good point, Julia. So here's, here's the way I think about it. And I think, you know, the U.S. actually is changing the mantra. They're changing the way that they do business. In other words, trying to generate more free cash flow. That means drilling less. That ultimately means production will be lower and, and help. And, and so at Tortoise, what we think is production in 2020 in the U.S. won't be as high as everybody thinks it is. So that ah. will help balance the supply demand a little bit more in 2020. Why? Why do you think actually the U.S. producers won't be producing so much? Is it simply because if they push the price down, that yeah. economics work less? That, that, that's exactly it. So think about what OPEC did. OPEC figured 
figured out they can do more with less. Rather than produce more at a lower price, they decided to produce less at a higher price, and that resulted in more revenue for all OPEC producers. The U.S. producers are figuring out the same thing. We don't have to produce as much, but we can get a higher price, and, and that results in higher net revenue than trying to push too much oil through the system and end up cratering the price. You know, it's interesting. We spend so much time talking about the impact and the marginal impact of, of the shell producers in the United States, but you're someone who says, actually, there are investment options outside of oil, and actually we should be looking at the increased exposure and use of gas, particularly here in the United States, as a, a sort of diversification tool here in the energy sector. Yeah. Talk me through your picks and why. Yeah, so the way we look at that, Julie, is, is there are lots of ways to play the energy sector, uh, but the, the supply sources are changing, and they're changing significantly. At Tortoise, we're focused on reducing carbon emissions, and the most practical way to do that, not only in the U.S., but around the world, is through increased use of natural gas. So natural gas has, has proven to reduce carbon emissions, actually, in the U.S. Not a lot of people know that. But places like China and India need to reduce carbon emissions. How do they do that? Use more natural gas and more renewables, less coal. So the best way to get the natural gas is through liquefied natural gas. So Chenier Energy, LNG is one of, the, one, one of our favorite stocks. It's a first mover advantage. It can actually ship and export uh, LNG to countries across the world, including China and India and, and, and everywhere else. Uh, Cabot Oil and Gas is another one of our favorite picks. It's one of the lowest cost producers of natural gas in the world as well. Okay, and the other one, Equitrans. Am I, am I doing that properly? Equitrans Midstream. Yes. Another one. Yeah, and, and one of the things we like, we love the Tortoise Energy Infrastructure. We think that investors in this low 10-year Treasury environment need stocks that have yield, and Equitrans has significant yield, uh, you know, 8, 9, 10% yield. That's a great stock down in this environment. It transports natural gas. It's that providing that critical pipeline connecting where the oil's being or natural gas is being produced and where it's being consumed on the Gulf Coast. You need that critical pipeline, and that's what Equitrans is doing. I love this idea. I mean, you point out, according to the 2019 BP Statistical Review, U.S. carbon dioxide emissions declined some 11 percent since 2008. India and China, their rise is 69 percent and 28 percent respectively. I mean, we know that it's easier for the United States to, to push to cleaner energies. But for the United States, relative to India and China, these guys need to be really focused on this too. Yeah. And how do you do that, Julia? So the reason why India and China have so much carbon dioxide and so much carbon dioxide growth is a significant amount of their electric is generated by coal, coal. right? You've got to get rid of coal. Uh, almost 75% of India generates electricity using coal. 69% of coal come, is used to generate electricity in China. You've got to get rid of that. You need more natural gas. You need more renewables in those two countries in particular and across the world. And, you, and you'll see some of the same results as you saw in the U.S., which is a reduction in carbon emissions. And that's what we think is really important to us. So we should be looking at these opportunities all around the world. Absolutely. Gas, natural gas, LNG, the future. Rob, fantastic to have you on and happy birthday once again. Thank you. Still not singing. Rob's on there. <laughs> Coming up. I don't want it to rain. Coming up, the show must go on. And if you can't make it to the theatre, you can now stream it yourself. We'll speak to the co-founder of Broadway's Answer to Netflix. Stay with us. That's coming up. Welcome back to First Move and a look at today's boardroom brief. Now to a report from Axios citing some explosive allegations by Peter Thiel. The billionaire investor and President Trump supporter, Thiel reportedly said at a conference that Google should be investigated for allegedly aiding the Chinese military. Axios reports Thiel questioned whether Google had become so infiltrated by Chinese intelligence that it now fully cooperates with it. 
Huawei is to cut jobs at its U.S. research unit, according to the Wall Street Journal. This is the Chinese tech giant battles against its U.S. blacklisting. The move would significantly affect the unit and its 850 jobs. It's one small step for man, no giant leap though for India. Well, not just yet anyway. India had to call off its first ever mission to the moon less than an hour before takeoff because of a, quote, technical slag. The country's space agency says it will announce a new launch date very soon. The bright lights of New York City went out on Saturday when a power failure plunged Manhattan's west side into darkness. The outage hit Times Square and cancelled nearly 30 Broadway shows. But in the city of lights, the show well and truly must go on. The cast of Broadway shows literally took their shows on the road, performing outside their theatres. Power has since been fully restored and the show can resume their normal schedules. Pretty incredible scenes though. However, if you can't make it to Broadway in person, there's now a way that you can stream it at home instead. It's called Broadway HD, an online streaming service offering more than 300 full-length high-definition Broadway productions for just $9 a month. Joining us now is Bonnie Comley, co-founder of Broadway HD. Bonnie, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much. Fantastic first that actually these performances were done on the streets. You know, that's show people. The yeah. show must go on. That's New York City. That's the, the New York City Police Department being able to heard these people that should have been inside of a building and everybody was safe and everybody was having a great time so yeah. um so yay for uh yay for broadway yay for new york city yay for uh for the new york city police Not department yay for the blackout in the first place but anyway <laughs> talk to me about your streaming service because for a lot of people going to the theater is incredibly expensive so there's an accessibility here that, that your app provides clearly yes as you mentioned broadway hd is a platform we are a global platform bringing down the barriers of access to Broadway. Um, we have 300 and counting. Today we launched Kinky Boots on our service to stream. We have over 300 shows, full-length shows that are available for streaming. We also take select titles and we put them in cinema around the world and we take select titles for educational uh, distribution around the world and some titles that we take and put into broadcasts around the world. So we are pushing out this content and making it accessible to everybody. And to the brand of Broadway, if you look at that and the power of Broadway. Um, last year, there were close to uh, 15 million tickets sold for Broadway shows, and that box office brought in just under $2 billion. Now, that's just for the box office. That's not the economic impact that that had on New York City, which is another $13 billion. So this is a fan base with resources. And when these guys want to see shows, they come in. Let's look at the demand for that. They have to pay for the ticket, yes. get into New York City, get into Times Square and be there for an 8 o'clock curtain. So what happens if we make that available to them 24-7 streaming? They're not going to stop going to see that because Broadway is magic. I mean, there's nothing like live theater. Is that they the just, challenge you're facing? Though? I mean, you're a celebrated producer yourself. Is that the challenge that you're having saying to people, hey, put your, put your show on our, our streaming service because they're like, hey, we might stop people who may come and pay 
a lot of money actually to go and see it. Yes, that is definitely a fear. But because Broadway HD is a media technology company built by Broadway insiders, we're aware of that. We are working with people within the industry and taking input from people to try and protect the brand. Right. It's a multi-billion dollar brand. But these shows, the ones that we're talking about that are just in Times Square, what, you know, what happens when they close? This is a way for the brand to remain relevant as the tours go out, because those tours can go out a year or two later after the Broadway show has closed. How many people have signed up? We have, well, we don't actually talk about subscriber numbers, but we can talk about growth. So the growth is over 100% in the last year and a half. Right. Because the industry, we're going to be four years old in October, and the industry is seeing the value of what we're providing. So we are an amazing you know, entertainment streaming service with this quality, full-length content. But we'll also what we are is we're recognized by the Broadway League. Broadway HD is an affiliate member of the Broadway League. And what that means is that we are recognized as a service business for the Broadway right. industry. So we're promoting the brand of Broadway. We are the largest global commercial for the Broadway brand. Are you profitable and are you attracting investors at this stage? Because it looks expensive to go in there and film the way that you're filming, or even get the rights to, to put something like Kinky Boots on the platform. We have agreements in place with all 17 of the Broadway unions, guilds, and associations. Right. And it is an invasive procedure is to go in with like 14 cameras while there's an of audience course. there. Um, but again, the Broadway community sees the value of this, so the unions are all behind us because we are additive and we are helping them to protect their union members. If there is a high-quality, multi-camera capture of a Broadway show, we're knocking out the bootleg market because zero dollars ah, from the bootleggers goes back into the industry. Are you profitable? We are making money, but we're not profitable yeah. at this point, okay. but we're only four years old. Um, and as I said, our subscribership just keeps growing because it's being recommended by people in the industry. So people in the industry recognize us as an educational tool, as professional development. Very people that want to get in. I understand. Are... I love it. What about <laughs> the prospect of being bought by a Netflix? Because if I compare hundred dollars a year, basically, versus what you pay for Netflix, it kind of feels expensive. It does kind of feel expensive, but Netflix and the other giant streamers are all competing with each other. Yes. And I think in the future, in the, in the very near future, everybody's going to have one of those giant streamers because size matters in those. It's all about how many titles you have in your catalog. But then other people are going to go to their hobbies and their special interests, right. so the niches are going to find a special place. And as I said, Broadway is a very distinct brand. So while, you know, HBO Go and AT&T grabs its Warner catalogs and all these other things. Their this brand is identity new. is a little bit, you know, we're not sure where everything's going to land. And going to the theater is way yeah. more expensive than going to the movies. I'm selling it for you too. Bonnie Conley, <laughs> thank you for that. We are at record highs for these stocks. A quick look, but that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. <laughs> when you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.